Hello and welcome to Random Interesting Facts, the podcast about everything and nothing, with your host, 42. This week's topic is flamingos. So let's dive right in with fact number one. Flamingos defecate down their own legs to keep themselves cool. During sizzling hot summer days, you might have found that even the slightest bit of exertion can leave you feeling as sweaty as a week old bag of salad left in your shopping bag. Sweat, of course, is how humans, with the possible exception of Prince Andrew, keep themselves cool, along with aircon, ice bucket challenges, and standing in the frozen section of your local supermarket. As a species, we don't like sweating. It's not particularly pleasant, and it's a stinky business too. In 2020, the global antiperspirant and deodorant market was worth $77.5 billion. That's a lot of money to suppress our natural cooling mechanism. You might not like sweating, but you'd like it even less if you didn't sweat. Because who wants to spend their days sweltering like a boil-in-the-bag beef curry? And probably smelling like one too. If you don't like sweaty humans, an animal that you certainly wouldn't want to hang around with is a flamingo. Because they cool themselves down by defecating down their own legs. Yes, you heard that right. Bird feces and urine combine to form something called guano, which is ejected from a single orifice, the cloaci. Their, um, vajayjay and bumhole, to put it another way. And it's this mixture that flamingos use to cool themselves down. The proper word for the process is urohydrosis, which sounds like some kind of incredibly sterile scientific procedure, when, in fact, it's anything but. But there is real science behind shitting down your own leg. It's a highly efficient method for flamingos to keep cool, behaving much like sweat does on human skin. Guano is thicker than water, and the gloopy excrement doesn't run off their legs straight away. It stays put, keeping them cooler for longer. As it dries, it leaves a powdery residue, which coats those long flamingo pins and helps protect them from the scorching African sun. Flamingos aren't the only birds who use shit to keep cool. Other long-legged African wading birds partake in this fun party trick too. And in the case of the Arctic seabirds, guano doesn't just moderate their temperature. Oh no. All those millions of puffins, terns, gulls and gannets in the world produce enough guano to help cool the planet. If only the members of Extinction Rebellion could utilise their own faeces, then they might actually be useful. The ammonia from the bird poo combines with naturally occurring sulfuric acid and water to form clouds and tiny droplets. These are more effective heat shields than the larger droplets of non-poo-infused rain clouds. In summer, these guano-seeded clouds 
provide half a watt or more of cooling per square meter. That might sound like a drop in the ocean, I mean atmosphere, but every little helps to fend off global warming. And it's certainly a lot more effective than holding a protest during rush hour in London. As a side note for you British comedy fans listening, gannets really do wet their nests, as famously attested in Monty Python's bookshop sketch, since their nests are made of guano. Many a truth spoken in jest. You might be surprised to learn that, unlike humans, not many animals actually sweat. We share this ability with horses, primates, and randomly, hippos. Dogs and cats do sweat a little, but only through the gaps between their paw pads. A dog's main cooling technique is to pant. Which, to be fair, doesn't seem strange only because we're so used to it. Koalas adorably hug cool trees to cool down. And since koalas are seen as the laid-back hippies of the animal kingdom, it does seem somewhat appropriate that they keep themselves cool by tree-hugging. <coughs> Giraffes use the lines in their coat patterns as thermal conductors to keep the rest of their skin cool. And the silver Saharan ant has a metallic silver exoskeleton that reflects the desert sun. The ants are effectively wrapped in natural tinfoil like tiny little conspiracy theorists. We humans only managed to invent tinfoil in the late 19th century. It's amazing how often, when a human comes up with an exciting new invention, nature has already been there and done that eons ago. Such as Velcro. The burdock plant did that first. Sonar. Dolphins basically patented that. Suction cups. Those clingy octopus bastards had that one down. And of course, the pink plastic lawn flamingo was invented by just being a flamingo. Next up, random moments from history. Where each week we dive into one particularly odd moment from the past. In this episode, we go to April of 1942, when the British created an entire fake army in the North African desert. The most famous military deception in the history of warfare is undoubtedly that of the Trojan horse, which was actually a Greek horse, and also not even a horse at all, but a huge wooden model of a horse, left as a parting gift outside Troy by the Greeks, who'd apparently given up their fight after 10 years of stalemate and sailed away. Of course, this was a trick. The wooden horse was filled with Greek warriors, primed and set to slaughter the Trojans. This led to the adage, beware of Greeks bearing gifts. But a better one might have been, always look a gift horse in the mouth, or through the cracks between its planks at least, rather than just blithely wheeling it into your impenetrable city fortress. Nice go in there, 
Oh well, you live and you learn, I guess. But I digress. Whilst this particular ruse is the most famous bit of military hoodwinking, it's far from the most elaborate. That award belongs to a case of misdirection on a truly epic scale. In 1942, the British spent many weeks creating an entire fake army in the Egyptian desert to stop Commander Rommel's Africa Corps in their tracks and reverse the Allies' failing fortunes in one of the Second World War's most geographically challenging and strategically important regions. Makes the big wooden horse charade seem a bit insignificant now, doesn't it? Things were not looking so good for the Allies at the start of 1942, with Rommel threatening to reach the Suez Canal and cut off that vital supply route. The plan was simple enough. Make Rommel believe the British army wasn't ready. Misdirect Rommel's forces to attack a dummy army stationed some 40 miles south and use the element of surprise to ambush Rommel when and where he was least expecting it. Designated Operation Bertram, it was the brainchild of Brigadier Dudley Wrangle Clark. Clark gained the title, the greatest military deceiver of World War II, for his clever use of fictional battle directives, visual deceptions and double agents. Clark incidentally was arrested by the Germans in 1941 in Spain for wearing a dress whilst posing as a journalist named Wrangle Cracker. You have to admire the British for their commitment to the greater good, even if it does involve wearing pantyhose. There's even a photo of him that circulated amongst Allied High Command, looking rather fetching in his floral dress, turban and heels. <whistles> Thankfully for the Allied effort, the Germans mistakenly thought he was a double agent working for them and so released him. Which begs the question, how many German spies were wandering around in dresses during the war? Clark recruited filmmaker Joffrey Barkers and the camouflage unit to oversee Operation Bertram, and Barkers seemed to approach it very much as a film director would. He had plenty of experience directing in the desert, having filmed on location, the critically acclaimed King Solomon's Mines in 1937. Barkas had at his disposal some of the most imaginative minds in the British military. There were an assortment of magicians, set designers and filmmakers plucked from other units and brought together at the Camouflage Development and Training Centre to beat the enemy through illusion and deception. Or at least put on a really good show. He was also assisted by a Cairo-based spy, Renato Levi. Levi was a Jewish-Italian double agent. He went by several aliases such as Lambert and Mr. Rose. He fed false information to the Germans and Italians from Cairo throughout the war, under the codename Cheese. Yes, that's right, Cheese. He assisted Operation Bertram both in acquiring information and misdirecting Rommel. He was so good at flying under the radar that for many years he was even missing from the history books. He's only recently been added to the official accounts of Operation Bertram, perhaps after they realised 
Cheese was an actual person and not just a soldiers discussing their lunch. One of the most crucial members of the team was Jasper Maskelin, a seventh generation magician. Maskelin himself said, a lifetime of hiding things on the stage had taught him more about camouflage than rabbits and tigers will ever know. Then again, I don't think a rabbit would be particularly good at hiding a tank. Though come to think of it, I've never seen rabbits attempting to hide a tank in the first place. And perhaps that's because they're so good at it. Hmm, better keep an eye on those cute fluffy little buggers. One of Masculine's masterpieces was a collapsible dummy tank made from canvas on a rod framework. From the air, it looked like a real tank, but it was extremely lightweight and could be lifted by just two men. It was instrumental in creating the illusion that fooled Rommel. It's hard to imagine how big an operation this was. In weeks, the camouflage unit had created more than 400 dummy tanks, 100 fake field guns, nearly 2,000 soft-skinned vehicles, and 722 false truck canopies used to disguise the real tanks. The fake army was established deep in the desert, some 40 miles south of El Alamein, the coastal rail depot where the Allies actually planned to attack. The real army was made to look unprepared for the battle, still some 30 miles behind the lines. To complete the illusion of inefficiency, a bogus water pipeline was constructed extremely slowly and was far from being ready in the weeks leading up to the Allies' attack. This lulled Rommel into a false sense of security. Believing they had much more time than they did, he and his generals focused entirely on the fake army in the south. But on the 21st of October 1941, the British army made a switch. Under cover of darkness, trucks parked at El Alamein were moved back and disguised as tanks. The tanks and field guns, which had been 30 miles behind the front lines, were moved to El Alamein and disguised as trucks. Two days later, led by General Montgomery, the Second Battle of El Alamein began. Rommel's army was completely unprepared and in the wrong place. Within three weeks, it was over. A decisive victory for the Allies that changed the course of the war in North Africa, and Rommel had to crawl back to Hitler with his tail between his legs. Awkward. Now we'll take a short break whilst you absorb all that information, and very soon we'll be back with fact number two. Fact number two. Flamingos produce milk to feed their young. Yep, you heard that right. Flamingos feed their chicks milk. This nutrient-rich liquid comes from the parent flamingo's digestive tract, which they then regurgitate for their baby as a tasty treat. Mmm. This delicious-sounding substance is known as crop milk. 
as with all mammal progeny, the chicks need this sustenance to survive after hatching. It's very high in protein and fat, and is all a chick eats for the first few weeks of its life. Very few other birds produce crop milk, just doves, pigeons and emperor penguins. And it looks a bit like yellow cottage cheese. Sounds yummy, right? Well, flamingo crop milk, on the other hand, is somewhat terrifying in appearance. It's bright red, runny, and so much like blood that a recent video of adult flamingos feeding their chick terrified viewers online. He thought they were watching an avian horror film rather than an endearing Disney-style movie of a happy family eating breakfast. Flamingo milk is so gruesome it wouldn't look out of place splattered against the back windscreen of a gangster's car in a Tarantino film. Perhaps the most disturbing thing about this gory substance is the way in which the parents feed it to their young. One of the flamingo's parents regurgitates the bright red crop milk from its stomach, places its beak on top of its partner's head and just lets it dribble down their face to the untrained eye, it looks as though a flamingo has pecked its rival to death. That is, until you spot the little baby flamingo, with its mouth wide open, just sat below its parents, catching the drips that fall off its parents' faces, like a fluffy little weird vampire. Birds aren't the only non-mammals that produce milk. Whilst most cockroaches hatch from eggs and forage for themselves, Pacific beetle cockroach embryos grow inside their mother's brood sac and are nourished by a mixture of fats, sugars and protein, which the mother secretes and the embryos convert into cockroach milk. Cockroach milk is one of the most nutritious, calorific natural foods on the planet and has been reported in the press as a potential future superfood for humans, and will probably end up being the next hipster trend. Hey, it might sound gross, but it certainly beats Soylent Green. Sadly, the media didn't quite get their facts right, but their nuts never stopped them publishing crap before, has it? Because cockroach milk would be extremely difficult to harvest, and it's missing a couple of essential amino acids needed by humans. But the actual fact behind this story is more interesting than the widely reported bullshit because cockroach milk crystals may hold clues for new ways to deliver medicines such as cancer-killing drugs to human cells. Remarkably, there's a jumping spider in Southeast Asia that feeds its offspring in a very similar way to mammals its spiderlings lap spider milk, a solution of sugars, fats and protein, at their mother's underbelly, looking uncannily like a litter of suckling puppies. Albeit eight-legged, armour-plated puppies, straight out of your nightmares. As with many newborns, the newly hatched baby spiders are completely dependent on their mother's milk to survive. In this case, for the first 20 days of their lives. Perhaps more surprisingly, when they don't need the milk anymore, they carry on drinking it. In fact, the mother spider feeds them into adulthood, 
fully grown and capable of having offspring of their own. The arachnid equivalent of boomerang kids, I guess. Talking of boomerangs, one of the strangest milk-producing creatures on Earth lives in Australia, obviously. In typical Antipodian fashion, platypuses, whilst producing actual mammalian milk, don't feed it to their babies like any other mammal. Not content with already mixing things up enough by having a duck's beak instead of a regular mouth, laying eggs, and being one of the most venomous creatures in Australia, which is saying something, since the three most venomous snakes in the world reside on the Aussie mainland, they also defy convention in the feeding department too. Because platypuses don't have nipples. Their milk oozes out of mammary ducts in their skin. And the young just suck it off their fur, who live off this milk until they're about four months old. At which point they swim off to face the perils of the Aussie wilderness all on their own. Fact number three. The Romans ate flamingo tongues as a delicacy. That is, they ate the tongues of actual flamingos, not to be confused with the flamingo tongue snail, which doesn't sound tasty at all. In fact, a flamingo tongue snail absorbs toxins from the corals into its fleshy mantle to protect itself from predators, so it probably tastes bloody terrible. Anyway, back to the flamingo tongues. According to Roman historian Pliny the Elder, a guy called Apicius was responsible for the Roman love of flamingo tongues, which he reported as having a specially fine flavour. Little is known about Apicius himself, but his legacy remains in the form of Dairy Cochinaria, the second most ancient recipe book in the world. Although flamingos were common in Africa, during Roman times, you could often find them in Italy, and so to find them on a Roman menu wasn't all that odd. In fact, you can still find some species of flamingo today on the shores of Portugal, Spain and France, and on the island of Sardinia. Although flamingo doesn't get our taste buds going nowadays, at least not mine, Romans considered them a luxury. Apparently, flamingos have a wide, flat and serrated tongue. However, something which the Romans might not have been aware of, or maybe they were, is that flamingo tongues contain erectile tissue. That's right, flamingos get tongue boners. The erectile tissues fill with blood, stiffening and supporting the floor of their mouth and the tongue which allows them to keep their heads upside down in water to suck up food. The more you know. It'll certainly give you a good talking piece the next time you visit the zoo. Flamingo tongues weren't the only strange food the Romans liked to gorge on. They also famously ate stuffed dormice and milk-fed snails. Other strange delicacies included lark's tongue pie, sow's wombs, and weasel brains. The latter was more for medicinal reasons than pleasure, believed to be a cure for epilepsy. I doubt it did much good. But Lark's tongue pie sounds positively mild when compared with the pies eaten throughout the Middle Ages. 
when there was suddenly a craze for pies containing live birds that would fly out when the crust was breached. Famously invoked in the nursery song, Sing a Song of Sixpence, a pocket full of rye, four and twenty blackbirds baked in a pie. When the pie was opened, the birds began to sing. Wasn't that a dainty dish to set before the king? Certainly a little more dainty than the deadly dish served to King Joffrey at the Purple Wedding. <laughs> Stranger still was the pie that contained Sir Geoffrey Hudson, aka Lord Minimus, a dwarf servant of the Duke of Buckingham in the 1600s. When Charles I and Queen Henrietta visited the Buckinghams, the high point of the banquet was Hudson leaping out of a large game pie. Queen Henrietta was so amused that she adopted Hudson as some kind of weird pet, which was not perhaps the outcome he was hoping for. Royal banquets were notorious for their extraordinary dishes, with courtiers desperately trying to outdo their predecessors with their extravagance and originality. One of the most ridiculous was Roti Sans Paril, which consisted of 17 birds, arranged like an avian Russian doll, with each bird stuffed inside a bigger one, from the smallest, a warbler, to the largest, a great bustard. In between were, amongst others, a lark, a thrush, a goose, and a turkey. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Random Interesting Facts. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please rate and review it. And subscribe so you never miss another episode. Also, if you have a random interesting fact that you're just dying to share with me, then tweet it at me using the hashtag RiffPodcast. That's R-I-F Podcast. Each week I'll choose my favourite fan-submitted fact and read it out at the end of the episode. Thank you.